Okay, we're going to be in Job today again, Job chapter 35 to 37, uh, and I'm going to read for us. Uh, you can turn real quick to Job 37, and we'll be reading verses 14 to 20, just as our, to enter our time in here. Job 37, starting in verse 14, and I'll go ahead and read that. says this. This is the word of the Lord. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancing of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? You whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind. Can you, like him, spread out the skies hard as a, as a cast metal mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our, our case because of darkness. Shall it be told him that I would speak? Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? Let's pray. Lord, your word is good, and your word is true, and your word is life-giving. So God, help us now to revere your word, to sit under your word and hear what you have said. I pray, Lord, that everything that is true and is right and is good that is said here, Lord, that we would believe and apply and live by. And Lord, if there be anything that's not, I pray that we would throw it out. Would you anoint my lips here this morning, right now, and give an unction of your spirit that we may stand uprightly. Give us the grace to do that, we ask. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you remember last week, um, a couple weeks ago maybe, I'll just give a real short review. Um, So two weeks ago, uh, we looked at the idea that speaking, what we need to do to speak to sufferers. And we saw this, that since, since sufferers need to hear God's perspective, we must graciously, prophetically, and impartially speak. So I talked about speaking to sufferers, but I'm going to again qualify it this week, that Elihu, prior to speaking to Job, he did the following. I want you to notice this. So I, I, I don't want to be misheard here. <laughs> I really don't. I don't want us to be people who go into nursing homes and into funeral homes and tell sufferers, get over it. <laughs> stop, stop suffering in this way. I don't want that. I really don't want you to hear me say that. So this is the things that Elihu did prior to speaking to Job. Listen to what, you can turn to the next slide there, Ed, yeah. So the first thing he did, we saw this in the first couple chapters, is he sat with Job in his suffering and he just wept. Okay, so we've covered all of this, and I'm not going to review a bunch of it, but I just want you to keep this in mind. He, he listened with patience. He allowed room for Job to lament of his present suffering, and he asked questions and he prayed with him. You know, we don't see Elihu praying for him, but I, would, I will add that one. These pieces are really important because if we, if we jump to 
Um, if we jump to just speaking immediately, we will, we will err greatly, and I don't want us to do that. But after we have done this, we need to speak. The sufferer, a sufferer needs to hear from us in this way. So if you're taking notes, there should, this is what I want you to see today. That a sufferer's greatest sickness is bitterness toward God and others. And their most needed medicine is awe and wonder of God. So I want to say that again. There's two, two elements here. The greatest sickness for a sufferer is bitterness toward God or others, or even their self. And their most needed medicine is awe and wonder. Now, sickness, I'm going to define as this. Now, this should be the first point in your notes there, the fill in the blank. Sickness is the bitterness toward God and others. And I'm calling it, quote-unquote, soul rot. Soul rot. Now, I want to be clear about something. You don't have a soul. You are a soul, <laughs> Okay, I want to be very clear. I want to say that one more time. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. Who you are is a soul. And to the sufferer, sickness begins to rot out. Sickness or suffering, it begins to rot out the very core of us. Bitterness does. Think for a second. I don't know if you've ever seen a really old oak tree that's begun to rot from the center, but you can't see it. It's something that even if the tree looks healthy on the outside, from the inside out, it's being rotted out. And I would argue that this sickness of bitterness toward God and others will, will literally rot out the soul of an individual. So I want you to see the challenge in chapter 35. We're going to cover three chapters today, so we're covering a lot of ground, but I want you to see it all and, and Elihu's arguments. So the challenge, and Elihu responds for the third time to Job now. And I want you to see what Elihu's addressing here in verses 1 through, I think it's 7, I'm sorry, maybe 1 through 4, I'm sorry. He's addressing the bitterness that's set in. He's addressing the bitterness that's set in, and we know this because he asks Job rhetorically, what's the point of being good? This is what you've been continually asking, Job. What's the point of being good? Listen to what he says in verse 3. He said, you ask, this is Elihu to Job, he says, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had, if I had sinned? Now, now, what he's picking up on is what Job has said in another place, in Job 21. I want you to see what Job has already said. Job 21, 15. He asks, what is the Almighty, this is Job's words, that we should serve Him? And what profit do we get if we pray to Him? Okay, so these are some of the things that Job has said. And we've talked about Job, Job erring in some of these ways. Now, I want to be very clear. He did not err to suffer, okay? He suffered. As he suffered, he began to sin in his suffering, okay? Does that make sense? That's a very, there's a very big distinction there. Because the friends continually told him, you're suffering because you sinned. And Elihu's not saying that. Elihu's saying, your suffering has caused you to sin, or you have sinned in your suffering, now, I want you to consider something about bitterness. Bitterness is a really tricky thing, and it's really not that tricky. Let me give you an example of where, how we see bitterness. So consider with me for a second if we kept the back door open and you could hear people in the street. If someone walked past the church and, and cursed at us in some way, we would all be like, whatever, and we'd shrug it off. It would be no big deal. But, okay, so that's somebody out there 
someone we really don't know. It's, it's not really that, not, not that big of a deal. But consider someone at the end of your pew that you've known for 10 years looking at you and cursing at you. Maybe they, they would say the exact same words, the person in the street and the person at the end of the pew. But why does the person at the end of the pew, why does that one stick in your mind so much? Why, why would that one bother you so much worse? Likely, it would make you angry, and likely it would begin to maybe cause bitterness within us. And we may be upset, and here's, here's, one, of the per, here's one of the key markers of bitterness. You know how you know if you're bitter or not? Review, review, review. You continually review it over and over again. And the sufferer, I want you to think about this, someone's been sick for years, sitting in their room by themselves, no one around. Suffering often happens in isolation in that way. And they begin to review and review and review and review. God's done this. It's not fair. It's not fair that I'm in the position that I'm in. And God's personally done this to me. Or maybe it's someone else. Maybe, I mean, you've you got to think about Job. God afflicted him, but he did it through other people. Could you imagine going and seeing the Sabaeans who took all his camels and killed all his servants? It'd be very easy for him to be like, stinking Sabaeans, you come and take all my stuff. And in Job's case, it would be easy for, him to imagine, for us to imagine him being bitter toward other people who came to destroy all his things. Or worse yet, and this is what the temptation that's, that's leading Job in this direction, he's starting to become bitter toward God. This can be a bitterness toward God, a subtle, subtle disposition of anger. And we see examples of this all over Scripture. Let me just give you one. We see it in Naomi, in the book of Ruth. If you're reminded of the book of Ruth, in Ruth, um, Naomi takes, takes her daughters, and her two daughters and two sons, into the land of the Moabites. And she, she struck, or her sons are killed, and she comes and she says this when she comes back to the land of Israel. She said, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has test, testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So what's starting to form even in Naomi, we see, is she struck with calamity, and rather than responding in obedience, not, not rejoicing necessarily, she responds in bitterness. And in the same way, we see Job starting to respond. And Elihu's warning here is a warning to Job, but it's also a warning to all of us. It's a warning of, in your suffering, do not continue to compound sin. Listen to what he goes on to say in verse 2 of chapter 35. So chapter 35, he says, do you think this to be just? Do you say, now this is him talking to Job, it is my right before God that you ask, what, have it, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I hadn't had sinned? Now Elihu is going to give him two hypothetical answers here, and I want you to pay, pay mind to them. So we're going to look at the first hypothetical answer. The first hypothetical answer is, God is not affected by sin. Okay? So God is not affected by sin. I'm sorry. And, and really, yeah, on your notes it should say, you're asking the wrong question. That's really the issue here. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than you. This is him talking to Job. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? 
And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? He's basically saying, if you sin, what does that matter to God? Do you, do you think that your sin right now is affecting the Almighty? And his answer is no. It's not affecting him at all, which is why he's asking, you're asking the wrong question. If you're asking, what, what good is it that I walk in obedience, you're asking the wrong question. Thomas Watson observed, and I think it's very helpful. Actually, read down to verse uh, 8 with me. He says, if you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? If your wickedness concerns a man like yourself and your righteousness a son of man, he's basically saying your, your righteousness doesn't profit God. Your wickedness doesn't harm God. He's, 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 not, he's not affected by how you act in that way. And I think Thomas Watson hits it really well here when he says, we tend, and again, this is what, this is what Job is ultimately doing here, which is why he's continually talking about his sin and his righteousness. Thomas Watson says this. He says, we tend to focus on the one who brings the calamity rather than focusing on the one who sent the calamity. And what he means by that is he's just saying, we tend to get so focused on our, our little situation of suffering rather than focusing on the one who sent the suffering and the purpose he has behind it. So that's his first answer to, to these What's the point of being good? Basically, you're asking the wrong question. But notice what the second one is. And jump down to verse, verse 9 of chapter 35. He says this. He says, Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the Almighty. But none says, Where is God my Maker? Who gives songs in the night? Who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and who makes us wiser than the birds of the heaven? And here's his second answer. Answer number two is that God responds with perfect timing. Answer number two is that God responds with perfect timing. And his whole point here is to say that God's not on our timetable. God doesn't, he's not sitting up in heaven saying, well, Daniel really wants me to respond right now, so I should, I should hop to it. No, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. He's saying that even, and he, he noticed, he pays mind to the, the person, the, the wicked person who doesn't even pay mind to God. They suffer and they're, they're in anguish, and rather than asking, where is God my maker, they're basically crying out in selfishness. And he says, that's not how God works. He doesn't respond on our timetable. He responds on his timetable. Now, Elihu, here's, here's the application for us, though. Elihu is addressing the fleshly and instinctive response to suffering that thinks that we somehow put God in our debt when we, when we, when we walk in obedience. I want to be very clear. We don't put God in our debt when we walk in obedience. And we absolutely don't put God in our debt or, or affect God in that sense when we sin. But the question we should ask when suffering hits us is what is your response when you go through suffering. When, when you walk through suffering, is it, is it immediately to complain? Is it immediate, immediately just to talk about all the things, well, I don't deserve this. This isn't what I need. This, this isn't what I should have. Or is it to argue with God? God, you know, you know all that I've been through. You know I don't deserve this right now. Do you examine your attitude when you endure suffering? Because we tend to, I'll tell you what the human heart's tendency is to, it's to blame others, 
It's to look everywhere else, and it's to find the cause. What's, what's causing all this? Is it my sin? Is it, is it my friend? Is it this? And what we need to focus on actually first is how are we responding to what's happening to us? And we, that is not, that, hear me rightly, that is not the natural tendency of my heart. And that is not the natural tendency, I would argue, of any of your hearts. And the reason I can say that is because we see even in Job, his natural tendency is to say, why? Why are you doing this to me? I don't deserve this. Here are my rights. And ultimately, it gets to the question, do you understand that your trials are under the sovereign control of God? Every single trial that has ever come your way or ever will come your way is under the sovereign hand of the God of the universe. Because complaining, what complaining shows, and I am the chief of sinners in this way, complaining shows who we believe is in charge. If we believe a sovereign Lord over everything, even the bitter providences like we've seen in Job, they can be experienced and endured. R.C. Sproul once said, and I think it's very helpful, he says, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. And his whole point in saying that is to say that there's not a happenstance that comes. We always think, oh yeah, God's sovereign, he's in control until all of a sudden we're afflicted. And then all of a sudden we don't know anymore. And I just want to say, this is a sickness of suffering. This is the great sickness that bitterness, bitterness toward God and others, I would, again, I'm going to call it soul rot. We need to guard our own hearts from this soul rot. But I want you to see, look at, uh, jump down to verse, uh, and I know we're, we're kind of skipping around today, but we're, we're covering a lot of material. Uh, jump down to verse chapter 36. Listen to what Elihu's saying to him. And now I've again said, Elihu's not like the friends. He's different than the friends. He's prophetic. And now listen to what he says again in verse 3. He says, I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. He's literally saying, the word I'm bringing to you, Job, is a, is a word from afar. It's not from me. And he's, his desire is to show Job, I'm a friend here. I'm speaking to you as a friend. He says in verse 4, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Now, he's not saying I'm perfect in knowledge. He's saying that I'm bringing you God's perspective in this matter. So Elihu's coming to him and he's saying, I have knowledge, but the question is, is the knowledge enough? Is that really what's going really to heal Job's soul? And I think what A.W. Tozer says here is really important. And he, he, says, he says, what comes into your, our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I know this quote's been used before. It'll probably be used a hundred times more. What comes into your minds when you think about God is the most important thing about us. And the problem with Job here in this time is that his thoughts of God are far too earthly. They're far too like everybody else around him. And the sufferer who is sick with bitterness toward God and others, he needs medicine. So what is the medicine? What is the medicine that he needs? What medicine could possibly... I want you to think about where Job's sitting in this moment. Again, we need to reflect on this for a second. He's had his family taken from him. He's had every possession he owns ripped from his hand. All of it at the hands of what we would describe as terrorists. 
You can imagine the kind of bitterness that would, that would crop up in a man like this. And the question is, what medicine could pull a man out of a, out of a kind of soul-orienting-upon-itself focus? What medicine could heal an embittered soul? What medicine can revive jo- Job? And I'm arguing this, that the medicine that he needs is the same medicine that you and I need. And the cure of souls is awe. A-W-E. It's wonder. The cure of souls is awe. Now, I use the word awesome a lot, which is probably because I'm a millennial and I don't have a very large vocabulary. Okay? But the word awesome really gets used way too much, even for me. (laughs) Awesome literally means awe-inspiring. It it inspires within us a sort of wonder and amazement that can only come from God himself. And what we see Elihu doing here is he's starting to ramp up to what God's response is. Now, next week, Dave McGrew is actually going to be with us, and he's preaching Job 38. And I'm so excited for when God enters the scene. But but Elihu is, is reminding us, he's showing us awe is what is needed here. The medicine desperately needs, though, two doses, okay? So the awe, I would argue that Elihu's saying, it comes in two doses. Here's the first dose. The first dose is that God is mighty. God is mighty. And it's how God deals with people. Now, if we were to listen to just the perspectives that swirl around us, You'd, you'd listen to people all around you, and I will say, the people you probably listen to and I listen to a lot of times are very, very earthly. And I don't mean that in a good sense. I mean that in a very, uh, a very low view of God sense. When they think of God, the God they have in their mind is itty-bitty, very, very tiny. Now listen to what he says in verse 5. I think this is very interesting. He says, Behold, God is mighty, and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength and understanding. And his whole point here is saying, God's not looking at people and thinking, oh, there's my little playthingies. He's not looking at us in that way. He's not simply toying around with people on the earth. So God is mighty, and we, we look at how he deals with his people. And he deals with two different types of people. So it's God, the mighty God toward the wicked... And that's what we're going to look at first. It's toward the wicked. Now listen to what he says. You're going to hear two categories in this chapter 36. He's going to address the wicked and then the righteous. And he says in verse 11, look down there if you will with me. He says, if, you listen, if they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. If they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. We're listening again, verse 6, jump back to verse 6 chapter 36, he says, he does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. And it's how God deals with the wicked. Now, and I call that hypocrite in heart. Now, he says in verse 13, jump down there, he says, but the hypocrite in heart store up wrath. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth. And as one commentator says, suffering only intensifies their antagonism toward God. Now, I could show you there are infinite number of examples in the Scriptures. I think the most compelling is the simple one with Pharaoh. 
So if you think about Pharaoh, if you remember in the story of the Exodus, when God's people were in slavery, the Lord sent Moses to him, if you remember that story. And there was one huge obstacle that kept the people in slavery, and it was Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the one who was putting his people under, in slavery. And what's striking is what God tells Moses in, in chapter 4, and this should be on the screen, you don't need to turn here. Exodus 4, this is what the Lord says. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden. Hold on, notice that. Who hardens his heart? Does, does Pharaoh harden his own heart? Now, we're going to see there's, there's an exchange in Exodus. It says God hardens his heart, and yet Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But it says, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let his people go. So don't miss that. Who's going to harden Pharaoh's heart? God is. But notice the way that he does it. This is what's so compelling. It's so striking for us. The way that God, very simply, the way that God hardens Pharaoh's heart is he gives him grace. Now, this is, this is, there's wild examples we could give over and over and over again of this. But he, he warns him, he first warns him, he tells him to let his people go, then he sends judgment upon him, but it's not the judgment that does it. I want you to notice this. Look at, look at I me, mean, it's on the screen. Uh, Exodus eight fifteen. But when Pharaoh saw there was, now this is after the judgment, but when Pharaoh saw there was respite, okay, I want you to notice that. It's not judgment that, that causes Pharaoh's heart to harden. It's the grace of God that hardens Pharaoh's heart. When Pharaoh saw there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. Every time Pharaoh saw the judgment was relieved, he hardened his heart further. Now, this is very instructive for us. And I could give you an example of Jonah. We could give you examples of all throughout the Old Testament, when God, when God judges a people, then gives mercy to them, that's when they, they harden their heart. So I want you to see the resentment. It's cherishing anger. So you can imagine Pharaoh in a very similar position to Job in that way. He has everything. And when some little piece is taken from him, what does he do? He, he first says, oh, oh Lord, re- relinquish this. Don't, don't put this upon me any further. And then all of a sudden, God does, and what's he do? How dare you? How dare you do this to me? Resentment, anger. Now, we could look at Jonah, and I, I have it here to do that, but I'm, I'm going to skip that. If you want more on this, I could give you Jonah. Jonah is even more compelling than Pharaoh. But I want you to see the dynamic, and I want to ask you a simple question. What is your response to the grace of God? When you look at the grace of God, when you listen, when you hear in God's word what Jesus has done, maybe you receive it, but then another person wrongs you. And like we see in Matthew 18, what happens is he, he goes after that one who wronged him. Pay what you owe. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Forgiven people forgive much. And the application for us is simply, what is your response to the grace of God? And by it, you show whether you're righteous or wicked in that sense. So it's, that's how he deals with the wicked. Let me show you how he deals with the righteous. So here's how he deals with the righteous. And I would call this loving, loving discipline. Now, the way God deals with his children, I want to be very clear, is different than he deals with the wicked. 
Job, in his suffering, feels as though God is beating him mercilessly. But the reality is, is that even in his suffering, God is lovingly bringing him to himself. Jump down to verse uh, 7 through 9. I want you to see this. He says, He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them forever, and they are exalted. If they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. And his whole point here is just to say, Job, you've puffed, you've, your suffering has, is causing you to be puffed up, and it's a great warning to you. You need to humble your heart in this moment. So I want you to see what it does. So this is toward the righteous. Its cause is for purification. It's a, it's a pruning or a transforming grace that comes to them. And his suffering is meant to purify us, which is why James can write in another place, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. This is why, as believers, we rejoice in suffering. Because you know why? God is purifying us. He's transforming us in a way that we probably can't even see in the moment. Which is why he tells us to rejoice. I want you then to see the, the unlearned teacher. So who teaches him? Listen to what Elihu continually reminds Job. Behold, in verse 22, Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Who can say, you have done wrong? He is the teacher who's never learned anything. He is the teacher who literally no one has ever come to God and said, God, are you sure about that? Are, what, are you sure we should do that? I don't know. I, most of us are very well learned. And we've all had to learn those things. God never did that. No one ever taught him. And in this way, that should bring great comfort to the righteous as they suffer, knowing that no one has ever taught God. He knows perfectly. Okay, so Daniel, you've talked about the medicine of souls, which is awe, and now we've talked about might, how his might is toward the righteous and toward the wicked. What Elohim's about to do is very strange, though. And what he turns to, Dave McGraw was talking to him the other day about this, and he said, and I thought it was really funny, in chapter 30, 39, uh, God's going to come and basically pull up National Geographic for Job. <laughs> but I, thought, I think Elihu is even funnier because here's a man who's sitting in his suffering. He's sitting in boils. He has nothing. And literally, Elihu is going to roll in a little TV and he's going to turn on the weather channel. And he's going to say, you see that? How do you think God made that? <laughs> now notice what he does. So what you're going to see, so here's the second dose of medicine. So the first dose is God is mighty. The second dose is God is great. And it's how God governs the world. It's how God governs the world. The thing a sufferer needs, and me and you, brothers and sisters, I want to be clear, oftentimes we'll suffer. We will suffer. What we need in those moments of suffering, though, is to be pulled out of ourselves. We need a, a bigger view of God. Listen to what he says in verse 26 of chapter 36. Jump down to chapter 36, uh, verse 26. 
He says, Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. For he draws, he draws the drops of water. They distill his mist in rain. Now he's going to go on, and from chapter 36 to chapter 37, he's going to talk about thunderstorms. He's going to talk about rain. And he's going to ask the question. So I'm going to, I want us to see the lessons from a meteorologist. This is very strange. Lessons from a meteorologist. And it's a cause to wonder. This used to really bother me in engineering school. When we would sit and we would be learning maybe in chemistry or physics or something, and we would do a phenomena, whatever it is, fill in the blank for whatever phenomena it is. And one of the atheist students would be like, science. That's what they'd always say. Science. Look how science explains all these things. And I always chuckled to myself. Because the question that Joe, Elihu's about to ask Job here has nothing to do with science. I want to be very clear. Science, at its very best, and it's, I'm an, I used to be an engineer, I love science. Science is very good. But science only explains the observable. We can only see what's observable. And what Job is being asked here has nothing to do with observable. It has everything to do with God and his wondrous work. Now jump real quick to chapter 37 in verse 14. And we'll cover 14 to, 14 to 20, I think. And I have a question. Have you ever just looked at a storm and wondered, how did God make that? Just look at, the thing about a, a thunderstorm or a, a clouds or whatever. Like, we can look at those things and we can even manipulate through science. We can like, oh, look, we, we made some rain clouds. But we have no clue how these things form. I want to be very clear. We have no clue from where they come. We have no clue how they're made in that sense. Listen to what he says in verse 14. He says, hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Let's be very clear. That's what the sufferer needs. Every sufferer that's ever suffered any bit, what he needs to do is hear verse 14. Stop and consider the wondrous work of God. Listen to what he says in verse 15. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? <laughs> Basically saying, how does God make lightning? And the answer to all these questions should be, I don't know. We're going to see in chapter 38, God questioned Job, and all the answers are, I don't know. I don't know, because God's control over the cosmos, God is the one who's controlling over all these different things. So God's control over the cosmos. This is what he then goes on to say, verse 16. Do you know the balancing of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? And you whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind. And he's saying, look at the clouds. Look at them. Do you, do you know how God made those? The answer is no. The answer is no. We have no clue. And he says in verse 18, Can you, like him, spread out the skies, hard as a cast metal mirror? And Elihu is slowly giving Job the medicine he desperately needs which is a bigger view, a, a larger view of God. A larger view of God, which is filled with awe and wonder. 
And then I want you to notice, turn, jump down to the very end, chapter 37, 21 to 24. And he says, look at the sun. He literally tells, he literally tells Job, yeah, I know you're suffering. You probably can barely even lift your head. But can you look at the sun? <laughs> Listen to what he says. And now no one looks at the, on the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. And you can imagine, you can just think about Job sitting there in his suffering, trying to look at the sun and being like, yeah, it is pretty bright, isn't it? <laughs> like, and I just want you to see, this is what the sufferer needs. Me and you, when we suffer, we desperately need a larger view of God. And when we do this, I want to be very clear, when we look at the creation, when we look on the weather channel and we see the wonder of who God is, the power, the mightiness of Him, what it reflects to us is the greatness and the grandeur that we see ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 3 through 4 says this. He's referring to Jesus. He says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. I'm not sure if you've ever sat through a thunderstorm. I'm not sure if you've ever sat through a rainstorm or a snowstorm. I can recall one, one particular snowstorm growing up. I was walking with my grandfather, and at the time, it was, the snow was up to my waist. It probably was only about that tall. But, and I remember thinking, this is amazing. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Just snow all around. Beauty, beauty unmeasured, unmatched. And what does the writer of Hebrews say? The Lord Jesus is the one who upholds it with the word of his power. You know what the sufferer needs in that moment? He needs to know that the one who can heal his soul is the same one who upholds the universe with the word of his power. He says he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The medicine for the sufferer is awe. The medicine for the sufferer is wonder and beauty unmatched. I want you to see 2 Thessalonians, and I mentioned this this morning, but when Jesus comes, this is, this, and when you do this for the sufferer, when you bring the sufferer truth in this way, you are pre, you're, a, you're being a precursor to the Lord Jesus' coming. Listen to what 2 Thessalonians 1.10 says. When he comes on that day, to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed. When you help the sufferer get his eyes off of his situation of himself and off of his, of his situation or whatever else is plaguing him, and you help put his eyes on the Lord Jesus and behold the wonder of Christ, you are giving him a precursor, a pretaste of the Lord Jesus' arrival. And you're reminding him in that moment, hope's coming. It's not here right now. I realize it's not here right now, but it's coming. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at, by, at all, among all who have believed, because our testimony to you has, was believed. This, my brothers and sisters, is the medicine. This is the cure of souls to sufferers. 
And I'm not saying it takes away. I want you to notice this. It does not take away his suffering. His suffering remains. You know, he could bring in the, the weather channel and show him and say, how's that cloud made? How's the lightning made? Do you know all these things? And it brings Job down. It humbles him. But he's still sick. He's still suffering. It doesn't bring his kids back. It doesn't bring anything back. But the medicine of souls is awe. And what Dave's going to talk about next week is just going to floor us. Because when God himself shows up, he just turns the volume up. (laughs) He turns it up to a point that is the loudest, I would argue it's one of the loudest pictures. I I was so excited to have Dave preach next week. Because he said, and he's, he's right in this, Job 38 changed my life. When you start to realize who God is, it changes you. It, it pulls the sufferer out of their suffering. So the medicine, the medicine, the cure of souls is awe and wonder. And so I want you to see again, if you get nothing else from today, get this. A sufferer's greatest sickness is bitterness toward God and others. And their most needed medicine is awe and wonder. And I want you to consider as you leave here, you might not be suffering here today. But I want to promise you something. You will. One day, whether today, whether tomorrow, this is one thing the scriptures are very clear about. You will suffer. And as you prepare today to suffer, let me tell you, you're preparing for a bi- something bigger than yourself. And the way we prepare is the same way that the thing that Job needs. We need a bigger picture of God. We need a greater, grander picture of the Almighty in that way. So may God do that in our midst. I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then I want us to, um, we're going to move into a time, I think we've run a little over, um, 